All right. So uh, this morning, uh, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 27. Some of you know this story. This is the, the great storm uh, that the Apostle Paul goes through. And uh, just want to just talk about how that can relate to our life. How does the story that happened 2,000 years ago relate to our life today? And I know that we all go through storms in life. Some of you may be in a storm right now of your life. You can be in a financial storm. You can be in a marital storm. You can be a storm uh, in your relationships with your children. Uh, you can have your own personal war going on, your own storm. Uh, just you know, trying to overcome sin, you just keep going back to the same place over and over and over again. And it's just storms of life. They come and they go. And sometimes, you know, uh, we deal with them okay. And sometimes we feel like, you know, like Paul and some of these uh, men on this ship, ship, there were 276, we'll find out from the story, that, uh, you know, that you just feel like all hope is gone. That's the way that they felt. It was just like, we are not going to get out of this. But, you know, I love this. It says, you can look at this, just if you ever want to, if you got a, a Bible concordance or if you ever want to just Google this, just look up the two words, but God, but God. And that's what happened here. But God shows up. In the middle of this storm, God shows up. So just a little bit of history. This is what's called the fourth missionary journey. And uh, Paul had already been on three. And he had, um, uh, he'd go from town to town telling the good news about the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the gospel message that Jesus died for our sins. He'd go into a town and start talking about this. And uh, some would receive the message. And then there were that group of legalists, the, those that hated Paul and hated Jesus, hated the message. They were the ones that were responsible for the, uh, the, the arrest and crucifixion and death of Jesus. But God, you know, raised him from the dead. And so Paul would go from town to town and tell the story. And, and then there would be those that would follow him and um, he would just move on. He was always like God kept him like one town ahead, one step ahead of, uh, of those that were uh, persecuting him. And so we find that uh, in uh, Acts chapter uh, 24 uh, that, um, that Paul had, uh, had been arrested. He had spent two years in prison uh, under Governor uh, Felix. And then when Felix left and a man by the name of Festus comes in and Festus becomes governor and Festus calls the, the Sanhedrin or Hedron uh, to come and that was that 70, remember remember the 70 member Jewish council, they would sit in kind of like a semicircle and Paul would have to stand before them and he's standing before them giving an account of why he believes what he believes and... Um, they want him to come back to Jerusalem to stand trial before them. And uh, Paul says to Festus, he says, I am a Roman, I am a Roman citizen, and as a Roman citizen, I deserve a trial, not before these Jew Jewish people whom I've committed no crime. He says, if I am going to stand trial, I'm going to stand trial before Caesar. And so that's how we get to the place where we are right now in Acts chapter 27. Paul has made his plea. He has made his appeal. And as a Roman citizen, which many of the members on that council were not, they did not have the right to make that same appeal. But as a Roman citizen, he was treated differently. He had different rights than normal people. 
uh, all Romans had the same rights, but he appeals to Caesar, and so he um, is on his way under guard, and, um, and so we'll pick up in um, chapter 27, verse 1. It says, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Um, and you know how it is. I, you know, I, I remember you guys, I was telling you about my little arrest, you know, many, many years ago for disturbing the peace, uh, shooting Roman candles and fireworks at a time when it was legal, uh, 15 miles outside of the city limits, but nonetheless, I was arrested. And I'm thinking about going into a jail where there are just all kind of bad people. I mean, you got murderers, you got rapists, and you know, I mean, that's what the first thing they want to do, they want to size you up. You know, what are you here for? What are you here for? Man, I started thinking, you know, I, I can't go in and say shooting Roman candles. I'm, I'm just going to go in and say shooting. Maybe that would help me better. I'm just, I'm, I'm a shooter, I'm shooting. And, uh, you know, maybe they'd leave me alone if they thought I was a shooter. But anyway, I mean, those thoughts, they do. I'm, I'm not kidding you. They run through your mind. When you're going in or you're going in, you don't know who you're going in there with and what they're in there for. They're sizing you up and you're sizing them up. And, and it's like, you know, when I started the jail ministry, as I ministered, uh, and this is after I was saved, um, going in, and, and I thought it was going to be like I, I mentioned last week, you know, the little cage, like the visitors. You know, you're on one side of the cage and you got a phone and somebody else is on the other side and they've got a phone. But when I went in for the jail ministry, they closed the door, and I'm in there with, you know, these guys. And, you know, talk about an eerie feeling because it was just me and maybe 20 or 25 of them. Fortunately, the Word of God has a way of, you know, they didn't have to come. And they came to hear the Word of God. I hope that's why you're here this morning. But we go on with Paul. So Paul is... You know, um, the, he's a centurion, uh, Julius, and they embark on the ship of the Adramidium, and they sail to a port along the coast of Asia, and they put to sea. And by the way, I, I just need to apologize for my back, background this morning. You might want to just use your Bible because it just didn't work out like I thought it would. It looks so nice on my computer. And, and now on the screen, it's looking a little dark. But it says, uh, the next day, um, are they traveling with, and notice it says that we put out to sea. And you will notice that in this chapter, the word we and us is used over and over again. And what that indicates is that Luke, who is the writer of the book of Acts, is on this journey. So it's Luke and Paul, and then there was someone else with them, um, Aristarchus from Macedonia, from Thessal uh, uh, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So there's three, at least three believers on the ship. And the next day they put out for Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly. We see this, this, uh, this statement repeated over and over and over again, that when a man's ways are right before God, that even his enemies will be at peace with him. And we see that even though Paul was a prisoner, the, the centurion uh, treated him kindly. And um, 
gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for as prisoners in those, those days and still in some countries today. If you're in prison, your family has to provide for you. The prison doesn't provide for you. You know, your family would have to give you food and bring you money and, um, you know, it, it was totally up to the family or your friend. And so his friends uh, um, cared for him and it says they put out for sea and they sailed under the lee of Cyprus. And if you've got a, I don't know if we can go back to that, uh, Jacob, can we go back to that uh, map? Okay. And you can see in the lower right-hand corner, this is kind of uh, Paul's uh, uh, voyage right here. You see Cyprus, and, um, and then you can see, you can follow that line. If you look up in the upper left-hand corner, there's Rome and Italy there. That's where he's trying to get to. But you can see by the way that the line goes way down and makes that horseshoe. They took the scenic route and, um, you know, just kind of zigzagged all over the place. Normally, this trip would have taken probably about less than half the time that it took. But because of this incredible storm, it says they sailed under the lee of Cyprus. And what that means, the lee is um, the side that was protected from the wind. So on the other side of the island might have been pounded by the waves, but on the lee side, you were on the side that was, um, or uh, the, the other side was bombarded by the waves. The lee side is protected, you know, from being beaten by the waves. And so they're on the lee side, and um, it says that because the winds were against them, and when we had sailed across the open sea to uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia and Myra and Lycia, and you can see all of those still on the map there, it says, Then the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now, what these were, these were cargo ships. They were shipping, you know, grain and maybe, you know, cattle and, you know, whatever different types of material. They were just like cargo ships, just like freight trains today or uh, semi-trucks that we would see on, on the interstate. And this is the way that they moved their cargo around. So these guys were just hopping from ship to ship. The uh, centurion again found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. And we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty in uh, Snidus. And as the wind uh, did not allow us to go farther, we sailed into the Lee of Crete um, off uh, Salmon, Sal Salmon um, coasting along it was very difficult. And we came to Fair Havens near which was the city of Lassie. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, and that's talking about, I mean, Paul, or Luke is putting some important parts in here. The fast is the Day of Atonement, which usually occurs in late September or early October, and it says that they'd already passed that, and this is like the red flag warning. This is like the most dangerous times that you could possibly sail, but the owner of the ship and the captain of the ship and some of the guards had, had agreed. It was just like, you know, a majority rule here. They had decided that they were going to go ahead and go. The I mean, the owner of the ship is like, if my ship is sitting here for six months, I'm not making any money, so we're sending it. And the captain is like, yeah, I think I can do it. I've handled rough seas before, so a lot of, a lot of uh, um, faith in self, putting a lot of trust in himself and his ability uh, the owner's like, okay, let's go for it. The centurion's like, let's go for it. But uh, 
Paul advised them. Uh, this is Paul the prisoner talking to the owner of the company, uh, the captain of the ship, and also to the centurion. He says, Sir, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo of the ship, but of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot, or the captain, and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend winter in, the majority, the majority, remember that, the majority, wasn't it the majority that said crucify him, crucify him, crucify him? The majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix and harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. The island, that's the way it faced, northwest and southwest. They thought they could get behind the island and, you know, be protected from uh, the battering of the waves. And they would spend winter there. Now the south wind began to blow gently. And this is how life can turn on a dime for any of us. Life is good. So the south wind began to blow gently. And supposing that they obtained their purpose, that's what they were looking for, just a gentle south wind. Let's get going now. Let's get this ship moving and all the cargo and people on it. Um, and so supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed the anchors. That means they lifted the anchors and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught up and could not face the wind, the wind was blowing so hard that the ship couldn't, I mean, couldn't, there's no way the ship could move. We gave way to it. And we were just driven along, running under the lee of a small island in Cauda. Now, some of your translations may say Clauda. We ma managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supporters to undergird the ship. And what that means is that they simply, they took all the rope and all the tackle that they had and wrapped it around the ship in about three or four places and tied it together just to keep the ship from falling apart. So, you know, you've got this vessel. They wrap the ship in the front, perhaps in the middle, in the back, tied up. You know, they had their hoist and, and their, their cinches and everything, and they're trying to keep the ship from simply just falling apart. It says, Then fearing that they would run aground at Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along, and since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. They started throwing stuff overboard, getting it all, lightening the ship, lightening the load. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle away. They threw the, the tackle of the, uh, of, the, of the ship that they needed to sail the ship. They, you know, they're still light, lightening the load. And it says that when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, I'm going to tell you how important this is, because this is how they navigated. You navigated with the sun and the stars. And if you, if you can't see the sun, you can't see the stars, you don't know where you're going. And so, I mean, they're just out there just afloat, just, you know, I mean, just, you know, just being just storm-tossed and wherever the wind would blow them is where they were going. And some of your lives, I would just want to just interject that today, some of your lives are like that, that you thought that you could manage life by yourself. You don't need God you don't, need, you, know, you don't need support of anybody. I can make it on my own is what many of us have thought. Before you came to salvation, before I came to salvation, that's exactly what I thought. Hey, I'm a wise guy. I'm a smart guy. I'm a businessman. I know how to figure these things out. I mean, do I really need God? Do I really need God? 
But let me tell you what. The Bible tells us there was 276 men on that boat. We know three of them were Christians. I don't know where the other 273 stood. But I believe that they were all atheists or, or believing in some other God. I, I believe that, you know, that all of them were scared to death. And they just knew that life was about to be over. And whatever they believed in and whatever they trusted in, they were seeking the God that they trusted in. It says, on the third day, again, they threw over the tackle. Um, and then the sun and the stars had not appeared for many days. And it says, all of our hope of being saved was lost. It was abandoned. They had just given up. It was just like, you know, it's just a matter of time that this thing is falling apart and we are going to all be dead at sea. And since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. I love that. I love that. And men, I want to just speak to men. I know that you have heard that so many times from the one that you love. You should have listened to me. You should have listened to me. I've heard it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. And most of the time, I have to say, she was right. I should have listened to her. But in this case, Paul is saying, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now listen, he's trying to encourage. He's at, you know, he's encouraging all 275 men. He's the 76th. It says, this very night, there stood before me an angel of God. This is so important. I want you to just hang on to this because if you're in a storm, this is what you need. In the storms of life, you need a word from God. You need to hear from God. He says, this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. He's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to testify of Jesus about what Jesus has done in his life. He knows that if there's going to be any help at all, it's not going to come from any of their gods. It's going to come from the one true God, the one that is able. Our God is able. When you're in a mess, our God is able. When you're in trouble, our God is able. When you're in financial jam, our God is able. When you're in a marriage jam, our God is able. When you're in trouble at work, our God is able. When you've got trouble at school, our God is able. I'm going to tell you that we serve the one God and the only God that is able. And not only is he able, he is willing. All right, he says, I urge you to take heart, because there's not going to be any loss of life among you, but only the ship. This very night, the angel of the Lord, to whom I belong, to whom I serve, and who I worship, he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. And this is it. And Paul, Paul knew this. Paul knew this even before the angel showed up, and I'm going I'm to show you where. He says, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Well, Jacob, if you can do it again, if you can get back to that map, because they are way down, down in the horseshoe part of that map, and maybe up close to where you see the little boat right there on the left, lower left-hand side. But they are in the deep blue sea, and God had already told Paul, he said, Paul, you've got to go to Rome. And you're going to stand before Caesar, and you're going to testify of me. And Paul, in his mind, has got to be thinking, I don't care how bad this gets. I don't, you know, I, I don't know what really, what, prior to this angel showing up, I know that in Paul's mind, 
that Paul thought he knew this. God had already spoken to him and said, you're going to go to Rome and you're going to stand before Caesar and you're going to testify about Jesus Christ before Caesar. And Paul, in Paul's mind, he could have thought, man, this thing could fall, he, he could, this thing can fall apart. There can only be one board left. He, he, he's saying, I can ride this thing like a surfboard, but I'm getting to Rome. I don't know how I'm getting to Rome, but God has already told me I'm going to Rome, and even if this ship, this ship sinks and everything on it and every one of these people die, I know that I'm going to get to Rome because God has already told me that I am going to stand before Caesar and I'm going to testify. Now, see, when God gives you a word like that, when God begins to speak a word in your life, and that's why the prophetic words are so important, is, and hearing a word, a rhema word from God, you know, when God says, you know, when you ask God about your life, you know, that, uh, I think it's uh, Psalm 34 that says, God says that I know the best pathway for your life. That I know the best pathway. I know that you have thoughts and you have dreams and you have ideas about what your life is going to look like and who you're going to marry and what they're going to look like and how many kids you're going to have and what kind of house you're going to live in and what neighborhood you're going to live in. You've got all of these thoughts and all of these dreams, but God's saying, I know the best pathway for your life, and I'm going to lead you along the best pathway, not just a good pathway, not a pathway that maybe that you've thought of or you've dreamed of, because would Jesus say, I've come to give you life, and I've come to give it to you abundantly. And he says that, you know, eye has not seen, his ear has not heard, and neither has entered into the heart of man the plans that God has for you. That God's got, he said, my plans, my hopes, my dreams, my thoughts for you are so much greater. He says, as high as the heavens are above, the earth soar my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so, I mean, you may think you've got a good plan laid out, but I'm going to tell you what, God's got a better one. God's got a better plan. And so Paul knows that he's going to stand before Caesar. And he tells him, this angel tells him, and Paul is conveying to, the, to this 275 group of men, he says, the angel said to me, don't be afraid, Paul, because you've got to stand before Caesar. And behold, listen to this. God has granted you all that sail with you. Now, what's that tell us? What it tells us is that Paul was not just praying for himself. That Paul was in the war room for the 275 that were on the boat with him. You know, God, save these men. God, show yourself strong. Let the mighty hand of God be seen and demonstrated in this place. God, it's rough, and this, these are terrible seas, and this little boat is about to fall apart. But God, I'm praying, don't let a soul perish. Don't let a soul die here in this place. Lord God, please save this, these men. And he's praying and praying and praying. That's all he could do. I mean, there's nothing, he's not a sailor, and he's in, in chains, and he's shackled. So all he can do is pray. And when somebody tells you that all you can do is pray, you know, that better be the first thing on your list and not the last thing on your list. Okay? And so, and so Paul says that, uh, or God, the angel says, that God has granted you all that sail with you, so take heart. Encourage the men, for I have faith in God, or be encouraged, men. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island, and you can back to the map there again. You can see it in the far left-hand corner, and that island is called Malta. It's also called today, if you want to Google it, called St. Paul's Island. Imagine that. 
All right, when the 14th night, I mean, just think about this. Any, any of you guys ever been seasick? Let me just see a show of hands. Anybody ever been seasick? Man, it's just the worst thing in the world. Man, it's just the worst thing in the world. And I, I'm imagining these guys, the only thing that you can think of is just, you know, getting to land. I heard about one woman that was, she was so, she was so seasick, you know, uh, and she was telling the captain and, you know, the first mate, and they were just saying, lady, don't worry, nobody's ever died of being seasick. And she said, don't say that. That was my only hope. You know, I was hoping I would die. I just can't take this anymore. And that you just want to get to, you just want to get to land. You know, I mean, you can see it and you're up and down and up and down. And it's just like, oh my gosh, it was just like, I, you know, I don't want to be this way. And I'm believing that for 14 days a night after being in this storm, it says they were being uh, driven across the Adriatic Sea and about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. And so they took a sounding and found it 20 fathoms. I believe a fathom is like two yards, right? Six feet? All right. Any mathematicians in here? A fat, somebody's taking a guess. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. I believe it's two yards. So a football field would be how many fathoms? How many? For how many fathoms? For 20 fathoms? So that would be six feet to one fathom, right? <laughs> I think that's right. All right. And fearing that they might run on the rocks, they let down their anchors from the stern, that would be the back of the boat, and they prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the, sh uh, the ship and had lowered the, the ship's boat, and this is kind of like the... Um, the little lifeboat, they lowered it into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Paul said, all right, now notice this. You got the owner of the ship, you got a captain of the ship, and you got a centurion, but who's in charge here? All of a sudden, Paul became in charge, the prisoner. Paul, the prisoner, says to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, he's saying, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So these men are going to determine the fate of these men. And so he's in and says, uh, then the soldiers cut away the rope of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food. Imagine that. Having taken nothing, therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength and not a hair of your hair or hair of your head is going to perish from you. So notice that the encouragement that Paul's giving them. He's giving them, first of all, he's giving them spiritual encouragement. He said that my God, the God that I serve, sent his angel and told me that, you know, none of you are going to die, that everyone's going to be saved. He says the only thing that's going to be destroyed is the ship. Uh, he's giving them, you know, a, a spiritual encouragement. And then he's giving them a physical encouragement. He's saying, you know, I, he starts to eat bread. I think it's kind of interesting that he breaks bread, okay? He breaks bread. We're going to break bread in just a moment. But, I mean, there are a lot of things on that boat that I'm sure other kind of food that they could have broken. But that remember when Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven, I am the bread of life. And Paul breaks bread and begins to pass it out and gives it to them. So he gives them spiritual encouragement. He gives them physical encouragement. And then he says, 
that he gives him this emotional encouragement. He says, God has told me that none of you are going to die. We're all going to be saved, okay? And so he's encouraging them. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all of them, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged. They were encouraged by what Paul had said and done. They ate some food themselves. And there were 276 uh, persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but noticed a bay and a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. And a lot of times this is what they would do. Like if a ship was just running out of control, they would drag anchors just to slow it down. And sometimes that anchor would get hung up on a rock. And uh, they would cut the rope. And then they'd drop another anchor. And those of you that have been, you know, fishermen, uh, you've done this before. You've, you know, hung your anchor up on a rock and had to leave it in the lake. I've done that a number of times. But they would tell, you know, uh, people that, you know, that, uh, that are searching for treasures have found these anchors, like three or four anchors in a row, and then found the broken ship. And that's what they were doing. They were just trying to slow this thing down. It says, striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow, the front of the ship, uh, struck or stuck and remained immovable in the stern. The backside of the ship was broken up by the surf. And the soldiers' plans were to kill the prisoners. The reason they wanted to do that, it was your life for the prisoner's life. If you let a prisoner get away, you were responsible for it, and you paid for it with, their, with your life. And so the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim and escape. But the centurion, this is Julius, this is Paul's friend now, somehow Paul has made friends with him, wishing to save Paul's life, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to make for land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to the land. Now, in Acts chapter 9, the Bible says when, when Paul got saved and Ananias came to uh, Paul, remember his eye, he was blinded and Paul was uh, told to go to the city, to Straight Street, and Ananias was there and Paul, the God speaks to Ananias and he says, I want you to go to to this man named Paul, and Ananias says, Lord, I know how much you know, suffering and pain he has caused to your people. But in Acts chapter 9, when Paul is, God is speaking to Ananias, he says, I want you to go and lay hands on him and heal him so he can see. And Ananias is doing that dialogue, and God says, go, because he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So the first, there are a couple of big, big points that I want you to see here before we take communion. And I believe they apply to you, and they can apply to you either today or tomorrow, whenever you're going through a storm. And I want you to just, I want you to recognize some of the things that happen in this story. And now the first point you need to see is that the hand of God's presence, God's presence was there. Um, and remember, I'm just all of this comes from about the same two or three verses, so I'll be repeating myself. So I want you to get it. The hand of God's presence. We know that this very night, Paul says, 
there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. Behold, God has granted you all of those that sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. So God's presence was with, God, with Paul in the middle of the storm, just as he will be with you in the middle of any storm that you face. And then, again, we see in Acts chapter 18, um, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. You got to know that no matter what kind of storm that you're in, what kind of storm that you're facing, and Paul was, you know, under attack at this point uh, in his life, being persecuted for preaching the gospel, but God says that I am with you. And then we see in John chapter 10, Jesus saying to his disciples, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one, listen to this, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. When you give your life to Jesus, you know, you belong to him. You've been bought and paid for, we'll see here in just a moment, that you've been bought and paid for with a price. The second thing I need you to see is not only the hand of God's presence, but the hand of God's possession. It says in verse 23, he said again, the God to whom I belong, I belong to God. If you're a Christian, you belong to God. Um, again, Acts chapter 9, he says that he is a chosen instrument of mine, that I have called him, he belongs to me. That's what God is telling Ananias. And then we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, that God paid a ransom to save you, to save you from the impossible road to heaven which your fathers tried to take, and the ransom he paid was not mere gold and silver, as you very well know, but he paid for you with the precious life blood of Christ, the sinless spot of lamb, or the spotless lamb of God. He paid for you with the precious life blood of Christ. He bought you. And if you're a Christian today, the only way that you're going to get to heaven, if you're not a Christian today, is to put your faith and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian today, the only way that you're getting to heaven is because he paid for you. He bought you. He paid for you with the precious blood of the Lamb. And so not only are, is he, uh, in the hand, are we in the hand of God's presence, but we're in the hand of God's possession, and the hand of God's purpose is upon us. And it says uh, in verse 23 and 24, this very night there stood before me the angel that says, do not be afraid, Paul, because you've got to stand before Caesar. You're going to Caesar. And then we see in Acts chapter 23, it says that when Paul was testifying before the Jewish council again and the Jews, it says when the dissension became so violent, the uh, the uh, tribune, the, uh, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. And the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Paul, take courage. As, far as, you have as, as much as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so will you testify about me in Rome. So Paul knew way beforehand, before he even got on that boat, he knew that he was going to make it to Rome somehow. And then we see the hand of God's protection when we're going through a storm. And you may not think that you're going to make it. It says that they thought when all hope of, of succeeding 
you know, had uh, failed, when they all felt like this ship was going to sink and they were going to be doomed, you know, the Lord spoke to Paul again and says that even those that you've been praying for have been granted to you. And then he says in Isaiah chapter 43, I read this this morning, sent this message to some of you. Don't be afraid, for I've ransomed you. I've called you by, my, by name and you are mine. And when you go through deep waters, that's what they were in, and great trouble, I will be with you. Now, we're not talking about Paul right now. I'm talking about you. And apply this, John, I just want you to apply this to your life. He says, don't be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. God knows your name. He knows the very numbers of the hairs of your head, or how many used to be there. He says, when you go through deep waters and through great trouble, I will be with you. And when you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. And when you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. And the flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. I am your Savior. I want to just tell you that God has done a lot with brokenness. We see the ship absolutely destroyed. But God can do a lot with brokenness. He can do a lot with your brokenness. You may just think that I've got to, I'm going to have to sit on the sideline until I you know, get ready. But and we go back into the Old Testament. We see Gideon and his mighty army started out with, you know, I believe 30-some-odd thousand, you know. And then he gets it down. He keeps whittling it down and whittling it down. He gets to finally 300. But when they go out to defeat the enemy, he says, I want you to take these clay, char clay jars, put a candle inside. I want, you to, I want you to take a hammer. I want you to take something and break the jar. Allow those pieces to fall down. Allow those broken pieces of that jar to fall down. And let that light shine through. And then when that light begins to shine through, then you give a shout and begin to blow your shofar, blow your trumpet, and says, you know, the battle is for the Lord and for Gideon. And the enemy began to, to scatter. When they began to you know, break their, their pots and break their, 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 those vessels into pieces, and the light began to shine through, that's what happens sometimes when in our brokenness, Light begins to shine through. You remember the woman with the alabaster box? She was in that room for how many hours? Who knows how many hours she was in there. But I tell you what, the moment she broke that box, the moment that that box was fractured and broken and the scent of that perfume began to radiate the room, God knew, the people knew that something was about to happen. It took the broken box, though. It, was, it did nothing, did absolutely nothing when it was in its containment when it was a box, but when it was fractured and broken, then it became a sweet-smelling savior or savor for some and an anointing for the Savior. And then we see Jesus taking the fish and the loaves and breaking them up to feed 5,000 pieces. It was the, or 5,000 people. It was the broken pieces that God used. And then we see these pieces of the ship that people were able to get on and hang on and cling to to get to shore. I want to tell you that God can even use the fragmented pieces of your life today, where you are, no matter where you are or what you're going through, God can use you today as a testimony of His power, His great power and work in your life. Some of you will remember a pastor by the name of John Harper. We're going to end with this. But on April the 15th, 1912, one of the greatest shipping disasters happened, greatest in history happened, the sinking of the Titanic. 
And uh, it happened on April the 15th, 1912. I wasn't born then. I don't remember this. I'm not recalling this from memory. I remember it from history. All right. But there was a guy by the name of John Harper. He had lost his wife. He was a pastor in, in uh, London. And he had been invited to preach at the Moody Church in Chicago. It was named for the famous founder, Dwight Moody. And the church was anxiously awaiting his arrival, not only because of the pending services, but to meet their next pastor. As Harper planned to accept the invitation, Harper was known as an engaging preacher, and uh, he had pastored two churches uh, prior in London. Uh, his preaching style was suited for an evangelist, as testified by the words of another local pastor. He was a great open-air preacher and could always command large and appreciative audiences. He could deal with all kind of interrupters. His great an intelligent uh, grasp of the Bible truth enabled him to successfully combat all assailants. And when the Titanic hit the iceberg, Harper successfully led his daughter to a lifeboat. Being a widower, he may have been allowed to join her, but instead he forsook his own rescue, choosing to provide the masses with one more chance to know Christ. And Harper ran from person to person. This is while the ship is still afloat, passionately telling others about Christ, about believing in Christ, about accepting Christ as their Savior. And as water began to submerge the unsinkable ship, and by the way, there were, when, when the Titanic left, it was called the unsinkable ship, and someone was even quoted as saying that not even God himself could sink this ship. This is the maiden voyage, the first time out of the, out of the, out of the dock. It's, it's maiden voyage. And as the waters began to submerge the unsinkable ship, Harper was heard shouting, women and children and the unsaved into the lifeboat. Women, children, and the unsaved. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, get in the lifeboat. He says, you need it more than I do. And up until the last moment on the ship, Harper pleaded with people to give their lives to Jesus. The ship be, uh, disappeared beneath the deep, frigid waters, leaving hundreds floundering in its wake with no realistic chance of rescue. And Harper struggled through hyperthermia to swim to as many people as he could, still sharing the gospel. Harper eventually would lose his battle with hyperthermia, but not before giving many people one last glorious chance to of a gospel witness. Four years after the tragedy at the Titanic survivor meeting in Ontario, Canada, one survivor recounted his interaction with Harper in the middle of the icy water of the Atlantic, and he testified he was clinging to ship's debris when Harper swam up to him, twice challenging him with a biblical invitation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He rejected the offer once, and yet given the second chance, with miles of water beneath him, the man gave his life to Christ. And then as Harper succumbed to the watery grave, this new believer was rescued by a returning lifeboat. And as he concluded his remarks in the Ontario meeting of survivors, he simply stated, I am the last convert of John Harper. Imagine that. Talk about determination, 
Oh, that God would give us that kind of determination. He would give you and I that same kind of determination. Now, guys, I want to tell you something. I want to challenge you today. First of all, I want to challenge you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, just like John Harper, you need to get saved. You need to get in a lifeboat, and his name is Jesus. Okay? But I want to, there are a lot of churches in this city. There are a lot of good churches in this city and a lot of good pastors in this city, and I know a lot of them. But I want you, and I want this church to have the mindset that there are no other churches in this city and that you are the only evangelist and we are the only church that's going to reach anybody that you see out there on the street. Let's just imagine that. Let's just, just pretend that there's no other churches in this city. There are no other evangelists in this city except for you and I. Let's walk out these doors like John Harper and see if we can get some to come to the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's do it. Let's do it.